those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, tire you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. Welcome everybody, this is Room Tone, the radio show, I'm Roger, your host, and here we are talking movies because we love it, broadcasting from Unseated Masculine Land on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio, here we are in Vancouver, and we're gonna head dive into the world of films, we're kicking off our third season today, our 31st episode in our two years long lifetime, and here we are. <clears throat> everybody, get ready and raise your hands because today we are joined by phenomenal personality. Everybody, raise your hands for the programmer of the Vancouver International Film Festival, Tom Charity. <laughs> Good morning. All right, we got some clapping going on right there. How is it going, Tom? How are you feeling today? So, do you always start the show with Charlie Chaplin? <laughs> yes, I, I, from the second season, always, always. You know, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's quite something. You know, to me, uh, it means a lot, and I feel like it means a lot for a lot of filmmakers out there. And that being said, I'd love to ask you first of all, first things first, who are you? My name is Tom Charity. I'm uh, mid fifties. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> mid fifties. I'm from England originally. Moved here in two thousand and four. I'm a father two sons I'm a husband one wife I <laughs> program the Van City Theatre in Vancouver uh, it's the year-round single-screen art house venue at the Vancouver International Film Festival and prior to that I was a film critic for three decades pretty much oh wow okay we're gonna head dive into all of that we're gonna get to talk about movies and film festivals and and all of that right away and hear about your own personal life as well because there seems to be a lot to explore there so with that being said what is the life of a of a film festival programmer how does it feel to to and and what it is what is it like to really program a theater in 2019 it's the best job in the world okay that's a great answer right there i love my job um it's a lot of fun. You do have, you have to watch a lot of movies, but um, you get paid for it. Okay, that sounds pretty good <laughs> that's, to me. That's been my entire professional life, by the way. <laughs> that's, wow, that's isn't that isn't that wow? That sounds amazing to me, and I'm really curious to hear actually what was the process in your life to really get there, and and you know how life took you where you are right now. Mm. You know, I, I, the first thing is I fell in love with with movies. That, that's like the number one qualification, I think, for both being a film critic and being a film programmer. If you, if you don't love movies, you have no business in either of those jobs. I fell in love with movies when I was about, about 13. Uh, I remember watching a lot of uh, Warner Brothers gangster movies mm. uh, on TV. Jimmy Cagney, Edward G. Robinson. Uh, and that was the start um, at the time in the UK, there were only three channels. When I was a bit older, they added Channel Four, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and we had one black and white television in the in the house. Uh, it was not a big screen; it was mm -hmm. probably about maybe eleven, twelve inches, and um, 
we had to battle it out for control of not even the remote because there wasn't a remote you battled for control of the dial <laughs> uh, and your parents usually won that battle but mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but my dad was was quite into uh, Jimmy Cagney as well so awesome. so that, that was a seminal moment for sure awesome wow that sounds like a really uh, uh, every time that you screen a film it's almost like you're being a DJ of culture right picking up the right the right uh, the right movies and and, and and feeding them into the big picture for the audience that there is here in Vancouver you know yeah I mean I think I think uh, uh, a lot of the key to being a good film programmer is is striking the right balance and it's having a having an eye for timing an ear for timing um, so that you're you're not alienating any uh, particular... Uh, there used to be maybe maybe uh, uh, one audience, and now that's no longer true. The audience is completely fractured. Uh, so I see my job as keeping lots of different audiences kind of in the air, like a juggler, and bringing them back in through the door on a regular basis. <laughs> and may maybe there's, you know, an audience for uh, art art documentaries um, mm -hmm. or fashion documentaries and then there's an audience that's interested in French movies and then there's an audience that's interested in Canadian uh, independent film and just keeping all those balls revolving mm -hmm. and that audience coming through keeping them all at, entertained mm -hmm. and hopefully they see trailers for other things going on in the theatre they see uh, our marketing um, they enjoy being in the theater and hopefully we're expanding their tastes as well so that they're coming and trying some of the other things that we're doing that's uh, really interesting because it feels like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of work uh, when it comes to even getting information and getting the feeling for the audience you know do you ever step in the room of the theater and just you know get a feeling for the audience or, or you all know, the time yeah. <laughs> it's really important uh, uh, what, and what i love watching i love watching films with an audience um but even you know, just dropping in halfway through, dropping in for five minutes, it can be quite interesting just to hear the, get a sense of the room. What do you look for when you step in the room? What well, is I look to see if there's for? anybody there in the first place. <laughs> 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 right on, right I'm, on. I'm looking, uh, I'm always curious at the makeup of the audience uh, age-wise, uh, ethnicity-wise, um, but also just... You know, you can. It's weird. Even, even with silence, there are different modulations of engagement that just mm. that you can pick up on in a, in a room. And um, so, uh, and also, of course, just talking to people on the on their way out. But um, I, I'm kind of uh, really hungry and thirsty for all the feedback that I can get from our audience. Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't the same thing as kind of pandering. I mean, that's that's the danger that you pander to an audience, or you just book in the movies that you know are gonna work. I see. And that would be that would be an easy thing to do, to be honest, because uh, I, I know there's a very large audience for films about fashion. Mm -hmm. we, like any art house cinema anywhere in the world, our audience skews a little bit older. Uh, I would say bourgeois. Mm -hmm. uh, because they have time and they have money. I see. Um, <laughs> so we could we could do very well just playing comfortable movies for that audience, um, and we'd play some. 
but I'm also trying to trying to fulfill our mission and our vision to uh, to really expand the horizons of what's available to cinema goers in Vancouver. Um, so I'm trying to show challenging work as well. I'm trying to show some avant-garde work. I'm trying to show what I consider to be uh, the most essential cinema of the moment. As that's, much as much as much as we can get. Yeah, I that mean, speaks you know. really out loud for for the Van City and what the Van City is doing also for the film community in Vancouver. And uh, that goes back to the concept of timing, you know. And, and I'm really curious to hear how you get to develop that sense of timing. While the culture is is being so hectic and so bold all the time, you know everything is changing so quickly. Mm. How do you develop that sense of timing in the cultural fabric of the film industry in 2019? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, when I started programming at the at the Van City, I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, I'd been a, <laughs> I'd been a film critic, um, and as a film critic, um, you know your job is to is to say what you think about a film and you might you might take on a kind of champion role for certain films to advocate for certain kinds of cinema um when you're a programmer that's still true to some extent but you learn pretty quickly that that can't be all, all that you do um you do have to be sensitive to what your constituency is because mm -hmm. if they're not on your side uh I don't see the point of playing films to an empty house. I see. It's like w there is there is nothing to be gained from from uh, that. Um, it's a two-way street art, right? It's got to be communication. And if the artist is just speaking to himself, then I'm not very interested. Yeah, that's that's um, awesome that you say that because all communication again begins with observation, right? And that's the 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 fascinating part I feel of what of what 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 you're what you're dealing with as a programmer. You're also uh, reading the psychology of of the the community, right? And what, that's a really hard skill to develop. I feel one, no. of, the, one of the first questions or remarks that uh, one of my colleagues, another film critic um, in in town, said to me when he heard I was getting this job was how. My my predecessor, who is a friend of mine uh, and was also is also a film critic, and who uh, I respect very much as a programmer, but my colleague said to me, um, you know, the timing is always wrong at the Van City Theatre, and I asked him what he meant, and he just said, you know, it just seems like uh, it's always like three months off, or <laughs> so I th I thought about that quite hard when I took the job, and found it useful advice to just think about what's happening uh, what's happening in terms of the climate what's happening in terms of the politics what's happening in terms of the calendar in how we structure what we do um, and it's a useful it's a useful kind of starting point because um, you're faced with you know, this this wall of of films to choose mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. and how we where to begin right well one way to begin is to think uh east is coming up what would be fun to do on easter weekend maybe uh the very first easter i programmed we did um monty python's life of brian mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and this year coming up uh this isn't definite but there's, there's a documentary uh in the states called the the gospel according to eureka which is about a small town uh, w uh, 
which has a really strong evangelical community mm -hmm. and a really strong uh, LGBT community. Uh, and they put on a Passion of the Christ in this town. And it's kind of contrasting the Passion of the Christ from the evangelicals point of view and kind of a drag version. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that would be a really fun thing to do at East. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so, so it's just like... It seems like you're looking always for months ahead. What is the timing mm -hmm. usually? Is it a couple of months ahead or more? Yeah, so uh, we have one screen. We program to a calendar month. And that calendar is a physical, real, tangible object that we okay. print in the <laughs> old-fashioned way. Uh, and that's a... It's a bit of a compromise to have that because it does mean that everything has to be set at least, uh, we, we go to press on that two weeks before the end of the month for the, for the following month, right? So in practical terms, it means we're, we're effectively scheduled for most films four to six weeks ahead mm -hmm. in order to hit that deadline on the print guide. I see. Um, and that's not ideal in this day and age because, you, as you say, things change really fast. Um, but at the same time, it's always good to have a deadline. For sure. Um, I, I work around that by uh, having a little bit of flexibility in the calendar. So most matinees, we can add those slots later uh, as long as the evening shows are in the, in the calendar. Um, but it would be nice to, to dispense with that entirely. If I circle back, uh, before I took that job, it was, it was a two-monthly calendar. And I was really pleased that we were able to turn that to a one-month. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the cinema tech still have that two-monthly calendar. Uh, I, th I think that's too much. I, I think see. I think you really want to have that flexibility. So, you know, right now it's Oscar season, and we're not a commercial mainstream theater, but the Oscars are such a huge part of the film-going calendar that it makes sense to to use that to our own, own advantage to leverage it. Yeah, it's always so, a balance, so, right? So we're showing uh, Oscar shorts uh, as of tomorrow, um, Oscar-nominated documentary shorts, live action and animation shorts. Um, we're showing Roma. Mm -hmm. um, and we're adding, we've, we've got Black Klansmen showing the, the day after the Oscars. Uh, just this morning, I booked in a screening of Capernaum, which is nominated for the foreign film category, um, which I wouldn't be able to do if we were just of adhering course. to that printed calendar. It feels like this balance uh, really helps a lot uh, and, and really create, you know, these, these, these moments, these special screenings that I guess are happening nowhere else. And with yeah. that being said, you know, I really want to open a parenthesis on Roma because, you know, Roma, it's, it's what an interesting uh, uh, event, you know, for, for the community of filmmaking around the world, you know, a film that was released on Netflix, but at the same time, so many people came on the theater to watch. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, that, there's been... You know, for the first hundred years, uh, cinema was was basically uh, not a very innovative kind of medium. Mm. Sound came along in 1928 or whatever it was, mm -hmm. um, and eventually films transitioned into being color. And but essentially, films were made and presented the same way for almost a century, and then digital happened. Around around 2000, mm -hmm. digital and digital kind of uh, exhibition began to took, take hold and that that began to change things 
and then the internet happened and streaming happened and this is a huge period of tumult in terms of how films are actually experienced by people how films are shot how films uh, which has actually been a very democrat democratizing thing i think made it much cheaper to make a film um, huge changes in the festival side huge changes for exhibition and netflix is a classic disruptor of the 21st century Ooh. and it's Nobody really knows where it's going to go, and I'll tell you what, Netflix also doesn't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Look at this, eh? Netflix, I love it. Okay. So ne Netflix is spending money hand over fist, uh, like nobody's business, to, to generate all this fabulous content, which is not a sustainable business model, except that their bus business strategy seems to be world domination. Mm. <laughs> they, they essentially want you to watch everything on Netflix, and that's not going to pay off, by the way. Mm. Um, Let's the, head the, dive into in, that. Let's in head my, dive into in that. my opinion, the only reason that they have given a theatrical release to, to Roma and theater owners like my theater programmers like myself will, will tell you that they have not been a good partner for cinemas at all. And, mm. and why would they be? They want people to watch content on their, their platform, yeah. Their platform. Um, so, so this has changed in the last four or five months. They've dabbled with some other films, giving them a small theatrical window. We persuaded them, and much to our surprise, to, to let us show uh, Orson Welles The Other Side of the Wind mm. just once. And by the way, they only gave us uh, three days' notice on that screening. But Oh, wow. <laughs> um, Roma, they they have only allowed because they want the Oscar. I That's see. the truth. Okay. Uh, and they probably only want the Oscar because their rivals, Amazon, won Oscars with Manchester by the Sea. I see, I see. So Was that worth it, you think? Um, well, there's a, there was a debate in, our, in my community as to whether independent theatres like the multiplexes should should play ball with Netflix or not, whether whether we should actually refuse to play the film because Netflix doesn't appreciate, doesn't uh, recognize the windows that have traditionally allowed uh, a theatrical run to have at least a three month gap before before being made available mm. online. I see. Um, I, I have never uh, seen that as a uh, a really viable long-term strategy to, to I don't believe that the window is gonna last I see uh, I think if people are kind of gonna come to the movies uh, rather than watch it at home then they're gonna do that because it's a superior experience mm -hmm. and it is a superior experience Absolutely. and we don't have to be ashamed about that it's like so day and date is fine with me and we've done several films day and date with online release and it's never hurt us at the box office that i can see and it didn't hurt us with roma either so we did it from december the 14th for three weeks to january the third i had never booked as many shows of a single film as i booked with roma something 30 odd shows in that three week period wow and um and happily it paid off big time uh, it's far and away the most successful film we've ever had um, and do you believe that giving the people the choice yeah to go to Netflix or the theater did that help people make the choice to come to the theater in some way 
I think it helped Netflix to promote a film which can easily be overlooked on their site mm. uh, because it's subtitled, it's black and white, uh, and it's kind of a slow film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly not an action-heavy film. Um, so I think the, the the whole theatrical festival life of Roma generated lots of publicity for Netflix, and certainly the Oscar enhances that by a thousand. I see. Um, did it help us that it was on Netflix? I don't think it necessarily helped us, but that film would not exist without Netflix. Netflix That's a good paid point right for there. the film. That's a really good point right and there. And the other side of the wind would never have been finished without Netflix. How so, do you see uh, that? You know, how do you see that impact other filmmakers out there and filmmaking in the next 10 years? You know, that's quite a that's quite a situation. That's quite a thing that happened, you know, with Netflix and Roma. And that's why I wanted to ex- dive into the into the parentheses and, and wrap it up right away. But how can that impact filmmakers in the next 10 years in the way? Well, I mean, I, d- I don't know the answer that be- to that because I don't know whether Netflix will consider this a one off. Maybe they get their Oscar Oscars. It's nominated for 10 of them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's all they want. Maybe then maybe then they move on. Um, but I, I would hope uh, that they would see this as a successful experiment and that that it might be worth their while doing this with other films in the future. Of course, they've got Martin Scorsese's The Irishman this year. Mm-hmm. And they've also you know, just come through Sundance and they bought a ton of films in Sundance, as have other streaming platforms. So as a, as a film exhibitor, you're thinking, are these films now off the table? Or are they going to allow us to to share in in the goods in the value? Mm-hmm. As if I were a filmmaker, I know where I would want my film to be. I would want my film to be everywhere, but both. <laughs> net, net, Netflix promises you that it, you will be in you know a gazillion home screens around the world. Not one of those home screens is going to compare with the experience of watching Roma in the big screen with 7.1 sound with an audience mm-hmm. and this is crucial i mean you know home theaters have improved a lot and people have really impressive setups but still uh they'll get distracted by the kids or they'll get a phone call in the middle of it yeah there is no comparison between the experience of course you can have in your house and the experience of the audience right because going and really watching the film with the audience the reactions of the audience even the, the, the energy that you feel in the theater yeah as we were so special about. right i really believe it uh, oh I, I guess many people believe it too and that proves you know 30 sold out screenings that is the proof that there is a hunger to go to the theater and yeah. have that experience you yeah. know there is a thirst for that i once had uh I once had a bunch of students from Vancouver Film School came to visit the theater. Um, There's about 25, 30 of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked them, they'd been in Vancouver two years, I think, they were graduating class. And uh, I asked them if they'd ever been to our theater before. (laughs) None of them had. And and then I asked them if they'd ever watched a pirated movie online, <laughs> a, a pirate stream, and of course they all had. Yeah. Uh, and then I said, so as filmmakers, um, where do you want people to see your films? And by the way, do you want to be paid for it? Mm-hmm. And it was like that had never occurred to them. So um, I don't know, you got to think about where you, where you put your film. And mm-hmm. what kind of deals you're willing to, to make with these giant companies? Because I can tell you there are, there are some really 
some really good art house films that have been sucked up by Netflix or by Amazon um, that were at Cannes last year, for example, uh, which they have done nothing with. They're on their site, but they're hidden and people don't see them. Mm -hmm. So in theory, they're accessible, but in practice, they're, they're like the films never existed. Wow, that's that's another interesting aspect to explore because that touches on the huge world of distribution again in 2019, where the only way to really get word out is to be creative and really find different angles. What if you were a filmmaker, if you had a film to make? Actually, let me open another parenthesis. <laughs> if you had a film to make, what would you make that film about? <laughs> um, I, you know, I've been saying for I've been saying for 35 years that I'm going to find some time and write a script and mm -hmm. I, I still haven't started writing that <laughs> script <laughs> so if I could answer that I'd probably have made it right <laughs> is there a thought any dream popping in your mind uh, would you have a genre in mind or anything like that I'm quite torn uh, I actually I, I went to college I went to film school uh, and part of that experience was film making um, and my graduation film was a 15-minute film about making a film. It okay. It was called Makeup. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> and it was a, a film about some people making a vampire movie. It was okay. in black and white and color. Oh, wow. And um, I, I think back at it and I cringe at how pretentious it was. Um, <laughs> but that film kind of uh, sums up maybe the, the paralyzing um, dichotomy because on the one hand I'm very drawn to uh, to commercial genre filmmaking uh, and on the other I'm too pretentious mm. <laughs> I want I want to do the art film um, that's another duality huh, for every single I guess filmmaker out there it's a, it's a duality right it's a, yeah. it's it's about uh, walking through the cracks and understanding what's the right balance and of course everybody has its own style uh, you know and, and but there is a but to that you know there seems to be like uh, sometimes you need to do that sacrifice in a way or the other, right? And and step closer not only to what you wish to see on the screen for what it would mean to you and simply to you, but of course there is a social responsibility, right? For every single cut that you make, mm -hmm. and there is there is a responsibility because any character in any fiction movie is more than just just a, a character is a is a representation of an idea, right? And same thing for documentaries and any other movie out there. It's there is really a responsibility that goes beyond the self and beyond the ego, mm -hmm. right? It's like mm -hmm. putting the ego on the side. And, and that being said, you know, I'm very curious because talking with the, uh, with the, with someone like you, I'm really curious to hear what would be your piece of advice or your words for people who would actually want to be programmers. <laughs> <laughs> um, there aren't many jobs. Mm. Um, is the truth um, know that there's no money in it um, but as I say it's a, it's a really fun job mm -hmm. um, I think we desperately need to have uh, a new generation of programmers coming through that more accurately reflects the diversity and pluralism of society um, it's traditionally been a very white straight middle-class kind mm -hmm. of occupation um, describing myself now <laughs> and, um, and um, that needs to change um, and is starting to but it's it's tricky because there isn't a huge um, you know it's not a big industry 
Um, and those of us who are lucky enough to be in those positions um, kind of need the work because mm -hmm. we're not good for much. <laughs> that's that's quite an interesting uh, interesting uh, speech that you had right there because uh, you know uh, it's it feels like the world is changing and it's changing not only in the in the bad ways I also think in the good ways and I feel mm -hmm. like that pluralism right that diversity we are uh, we are embracing that as we go ahead you know and then we step forward in your in, generation in you mean well i mean uh, yes n not only my generation but i also mean uh, just the glo you know globally uh, and of course canada especially that's what we can mainly talk about but i feel like there is a there is an instinct there is a drive to step towards acceptance and i'm i'm really really hopeful yeah. for that you know i really believe in that and you know with that i actually want to want to ask you about the biggest satisfaction as a programmer in all the in all the years oh God. what was the <laughs> moment if there was that one moment the biggest satisfaction as programmer of the vancouver international film festival hey wow what a question um um one thing comes to mind i mean that I find it a really, really satisfying job, and I'm, I'm sure there are hundreds of examples, but, but just stuck in my head is because you played it. Um, um, we, we showed The Great Dictator um, the day after the inauguration of President Trump. Ooh. And um, coincidentally not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I saw it with my sons, my wife, and... Um, I gave a little introduction to the film and um, and that speech that you played uh, just we were all crying mm -hmm. um, and and I know that, that that wasn't that was our my personal reaction tears and my wife's reaction and I know that that was also other people in the room and so that's a good example of timing and it's a good example of that shared communal experience and it's a good example of the power of cinema uh, that this this film made 70, 80 years ago retains this power to speak right to the heart of where we are. That's really the magic of cinema. You said it. Magic is uh, is is quite something, you know. I, I I probably can't imagine how it would feel to 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 be there, but living it is a different thing, you know. Living that moment of synergy with the with with the whole community for something that is globally extremely relevant, right? Right. Wow, that must, that must feel like something, and you know. And before we take a little break, um, you know, uh, I actually want to ask you why you chose today's soundtrack. You chose the soundtrack of Apocalypse Now, right? So uh -huh. I'd love to ask you why you chose Apocalypse Now and, and what that film means to you. Yeah. Um, again, uh, I saw it with my dad. I was 16. Uh, in Britain, this film was rated X. I couldn't have seen it at, at 16 in the UK, but we were on vacation in the United States. Uh, I remember vividly the cinema that I saw it in. It was basically a community hall in a village called Sconset on the island of Nantucket. Um, the film... My dad was a, a, an English lecturer. He wrote a book about Dante, actually. Mm. Um, and liked, liked movies. I remember thinking it really strange that he would go and see a film twice at the time. Um, it, happily, he took me to Apocalypse Now. And Apocalypse Now was probably the first time that I realized that films were directed. 
because it's such a visually extravagant film. Mm-hmm. Um, so that completely blew my mind and I actually ended up seeing it three times in three years on three different continents. I saw it a year later in in York, where I'm from in Yorkshire, uh, and I saw it um, in Italy a year after that um, with it Italian, I, th- I think it was in Italian with English subtitles. Oh wow! Um, so, so I saw it three years and three times in three years in that kind of gap of, of 16, 17, 18, and um, and by the end of those three years, I knew that I wanted to make my life uh, in the cinema world. I, what I wanted to be was a director, mm-hmm. um, which didn't pan out, but. Um, Life takes you where you gotta go, you know, and uh, I actually feel like uh, being a programmer, there is so much value to it. It's almost like being the director of the culture, you know, as I said, Thank the you, DJ bless of culture. You, bless you, know? you for saying that. But, <laughs> That's uh, so kind. But, uh, well, it's just something that I feel like <laughs> is the first, it's almost like everybody has an instinct, right? Whenever we see, we watch a movie first thing, oh, I want to be an actor, because it's the first thing that we see. But then the moment we explore all the world around filmmaking, then it feels like uh, it feels like we are drawn towards towards something that maybe was meant for us, you know. Yeah. And that's something that is really interesting to me to see in all aspects of life, you know. Coppola was huge influence on me. Um, he was a filmmaker who absolutely insisted on being an artist. Um, after Apocalypse Now, I then went and saw The Godfather, which, mm-hmm. of course, great, 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 great film. Um, I saw, I remember I, I was, when I, when I was 18, I was allowed to go down to London. It's about 200 miles from where I lived um, for two weeks on my own. I just stayed there and I saw, I think, 18 films and three or four plays and um, just immersed myself in culture. And one of the other, one of the films I saw on that trip was One from the Heart mm-hmm. by Coppola. Uh, and that film uh, is not a great, great film, but it's, it's a great, great folly. I see. <laughs> and... That film introduced me to Tom Waits, and mm. Tom Waits remains my favorite musician all these years later. Um, and this is how culture does kind of expand your mind, your consciousness, mm-hmm. and um, it's certainly the most important thing after family in my life. Very interesting. I love, I love to hear that. What a great time we had, and we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to continue the conversation with the one-minute pitch and the Proust questionnaire right after Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones from Apocalypse Now.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Room Tone, the radio show. Here we are on Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. This is the radio, radio show of about filmmaking. So if you're a filmmaker, industry professional, film lover, this is your radio show. Stick around because today we have here in the booth the amazing Tom Charity, programmer of the Vancouver International Film Festival. So, Tom, after the great conversation we had for the past 40 minutes, let me ask you, what's your artistic background? <laughs> um... I went to Canterbury uh, College in uh, in Kent, and I did a, a degree that was split between English and film. And uh, the first thing I did there pretty much was uh, agree to take over the College Film Society. Uh, and me and my, my friend Rob, who is now a film lecturer, um, took that for three years uh, added a added a second film society so that we could show films on Sundays and Wednesdays then I started a, a video club so we were showing films three times a week and um, and that was really my education in cinema mm. um, I became a film critic I worked for Time Out magazine in London for let me think, 1989 through uh, 2004. And then I became a, came over to Canada as a fil freelance film journalist. Mm -hmm. uh, wrote for a while for CNN, for CNN.com for five years. Um, and got to know the folks at the Vancouver International Film Festival. Uh, and uh, when an opening came up there, uh, programming year-round at Van City Theatre, they uh, they offered me that job uh, about ten years ago, two thousand and nine. Um, cultural background—I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I I like to read, I like to watch movies, I like to to listen to to music, uh, but I don't do any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> How about writing? Well, I think. Um, you know what is it they say about uh, critics? <laughs> it's 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 what we do when you can't do the thing that you love, right? Mm. Um, I've al always I, I'm a, I'm pretty adept with words, with writing words on a page, um, and I was not a bad film reviewer, um, and I found it very satisfying, and very fulfilling to do that. Um, and I've written a few books about movies, cinema. Wow. Um, Let's dive in there. I want to hear about that. What's going on there? Well, um, in my position at Time Out in London, you know, it was, it was a magazine that in the 90s, uh, everybody read. It was a very important publication for the film, mm -hmm. for film goers and for the film industry in the UK. Um, you had uh, an inordinate amount of power to help or hinder certain films help more than hinder I would say because a successful film is going to be a success no matter what mm -hmm. um, but um, because of that kind of uh, prominence certain degree of prominence um, 
offers were made, publishers would come and say, do you, do you want to write something? Do you want to contribute to this series? The first book I wrote was for the BFI, the British Film Institute, uh, and it was a monogram uh, in that they did a series of books, each dedicated to classic films, and then they decided to do a modern classic series. Mm. And they asked me to write for that modern classic series, and I wrote about the film The Right Stuff. Mm. So that was about 20,000 words. And that gave me a bit more confidence. And I said, well, maybe I could actually write a proper length book. <laughs> wow. And um, and somebody came to me and asked uh, if there was any filmmaker I'd be interested in writing about as, as a book study. And uh, I wrote about John Cassavetes, oh. American independent filmmaker, okay. um, whose, whose film Husbands... Um, well, I mean, there, there were a couple of films that had really made a big impression on me when I was still at home I saw a woman under the influence on BBC two uh, mm-hmm. and it was a film it's a film about um, a family a marriage a woman going through uh, a mental breakdown the impact that that has on her on her family on her husband um, and it was the first film I'd seen that really reflected a reality of family life that I knew firsthand um, and it had a tremendous emotional uh, power over me just to just to recognize something that people wouldn't talk about in public uh, and to see it reflected on the screen like that way um, and I, I don't mean to imply that um, my anything too directly autobiographical about my family but most families I think would would uh, recognize that there are arguments there are fights that go on uh, there are traumas it's difficult and uh, it's very different from the pictures of family you see in most American movies I see um, so so that as a teenager, that was important to me. And a few years later, I was actually at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, and after a day of watching movies uh, on the big screen at the film festival, I went back to my hotel and switched on the TV. And um, there was this, it was midway through, um, or <laughs> as it turned out, I later realized it was five minutes into Mm. Uh, the Cassavetes movie Husbands mm. um, and I didn't I didn't know at first what it was uh, because I'd missed the beginning and I'd never seen it before um, but the rhythm of that film was quite unique and quite unlike anything I'd seen and two and a half late nearly two and a half hours later the thing finished and I'd watched all of it it was two o'clock in the morning and so so those two films neither of which was in a cinema had, had really had a big impact on me and I was really curious to explore more about this guy so I wrote a book about John Cassavetes which was a big project for me um, it was probably two years of my life I mean I was working as a film critic at the same time um, but what an inspiring inspiring artist he was I, I couldn't conceive of uh, a better subject to spend two hours to two years mm-hmm. with because as, as an author you kind of commune with the subject wow what a great story right there you know this is really a beautiful story that encapsulates the power of of emotions you know and and, and that connection that happens through emotional experience right and especially through movies that is a very you know that's quite a that's quite a story right there write this story down write this story <laughs> down that's quite something mm. yeah and uh, that being said you know let's let's uh, let's moonwalk away a little bit from from uh, this conversation let's uh, let's 
head dive into the one minute pitch. How do you feel about that? Uh, awful. Here at, the, here at Room <laughs> I, Tone, uh, we, we do a one I, I, minute I, I pitch like at the end of the show. We just give a chance everybody one, to pitch their, their dream. One thing I hate is salesmanship. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you ready? You want to make it happen? Okay. We're yeah. going to put a little countdown. Three, two, one. Let's see the clock. Okay, Ruggiero. Um, th there's a there's a Wong Kar Wai movie called Days of Being Wild. I don't know if you've seen that film. No, you I know, haven't. Wong Kar Wai is a fabulous filmmaker from Hong Kong. And um, <coughs> Days of Being Wild uh, has this scene where Maggie Chung and Tony Leung are um, together. And he's coming on to her and... I, I can't remember who challenges who. I, I think I think he challenges her to just spend a minute face to face looking at each other and saying nothing. And just how long and how meaningful that minute can actually be. And I just want to pay homage to that scene by saying nothing for a minute. Oh, okay. Except that was a minute. That was a minute, so are we going to shut up for the next minute or what? <laughs> wow, that was quite something. I guess we can leave that air right there in the uh, on air, but uh, I'll give you that because that was quite meta. I like that. I need a half five in the booth for that. that. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Wow. Well, we're going to have to break that one minute of silence uh, with the Proust questionnaire. Okay. You know, we always uh, we pick five questions randomly from the Proust questionnaire and Proust wrote down 35 questions, believing that uh, answering those would help identify our true nature, you know, who we truly are, you know, at the core. So we're just going to pick five randomly and just get to talk a little bit before we wrap the whole episode up. How do you feel about that? How do I know it's actually random? Well, we're going to somehow attach it to the conversation in some way. And I would say random with the, <laughs> with the quote. Uh, with the quote. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. And that's where I actually want to ask you here. It says, who are your favorite writers? Mm. Okay. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Dashiell Hammett. Um, who else? Um, now, I'm, now I'm completely blanking. There are books. There are authors. <laughs> um, I'm going to say F. Scott Fitzgerald is my favorite author. Okay. Um, to the point where uh, my, my eldest son is named Jay after Gatsby, which amuses some of my more literary friends. It's not necessarily a, a good role model, but I love that book. Right on. We're, I'm going to take notes over here. And, uh, you know, I'm going to take notes. And that was the first question. Now we're going to step into the second question. And it is, which living person do you most admire? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, right now, I'm feeling a strong attraction to uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Is that her name? Um, You're going to have to tell me that. <laughs> She's, uh, you don't know her? She, she's uh, the, n one of the new, the youngest ever, actually, um, woman elected to, to, this, to Congress in the States. Good. So she's the most radical and inspiring uh, and unapologetic socialist uh, in Congress mm -hmm. um, with a Twitter following of uh, a million people or something um, and she is pushing uh, a radical agenda on the political discourse on the states which has not been articulated 
in my lifetime before. Mm. Uh, it hark, it's taking the Democratic Party back to its Roosevelt New Deal roots. She's somebody who is gives me hope for the future of the planet, which, you know, I can't think of too many American politicians uh, who inspire <laughs> that. <laughs> so okay. I'll go with that. That's a really good answer. I'm, gonna, I'm taking notes right now. That's really neat. And, uh, you know, third question of the Proust questionnaire. When and where were you happiest? <laughs> wow. What is happiness as well, right? Like, <laughs> and that's quite something uh, right there. Okay, I do know. I do have an answer for that. Uh, and it sounds cheesy, but it's the truth. And it was my wedding day. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Wow. <laughs> just, just don't ask me the date because I'm terrible with dates. No, okay, okay, no worries. <laughs> Right on. Okay, fourth, que fourth question of the Proust questionnaire. Okay, let's go a little bit more particular. How would you like to die? <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> bouncing from one side to the other. Why not? <laughs> How would I like to die? Uh, laughing at a Preston Sturges comedy in the cinema <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good answer right there he had it right there right in the pocket i feel that was amazing <laughs> and we just talked about happiness so let me ask you what is your idea of perfect happiness well this, this these are all uh, interrelated aren't they um mm. perfect happiness you know actually not being not sitting in the dark at all um being being out in the natural world with my family uh, on a blissful, warm spring day. How's that? That's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> That's something that, uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at where we are right now and, and how things are evolving, you know, it's, it's so interesting to go and define, you know, how happiness relates to every single one of us. And to me, this is a conversation that is really interesting to explore because, you know, uh, sometimes people call it a choice. Some people call it something that you got to pursue, you know, and, you know, it's it's interesting to see how people relate differently to it. You know, it tells a lot about who we are as human beings. Right. So, yeah, yeah I'm still I'm still smarting that I can only think of two authors. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome right there. This being said, you know, we, we have to wrap up this whole burrito. You know, we had an amazing hour of chatting here with Tom Charity, a programmer of the Vancouver International Film Festival. Do you have any shout outs? <laughs> no <laughs> not at all okay well uh, i guess we, we are approaching the end of the 31st episode we just kicked off our our third season of room tone here uh, you can also re-listen to these episodes that is a podcast on the website at roomtonepodcast.com and on itunes and google play and all those platforms and just get to re-explore a little bit what it feels like to be a programmer in 2019 Vancouver. That being said, uh, I thank you for listening and tuning in. This is Cop Radio 100.5 FM. I send you all a big hug, and I'll uh, I'll wrap it all up with, of course, the amazing song uh, from Apocalypse Now by The Doors. The end. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end of our elaborate lives, the end of everything that stands, the 
sei 